Well, hi everyone, and welcome back to Crosswise. It's James here, and today we have a fantastic episode and a fantastic guest. Again, plunging into the depths of RMC Retro's Discord service to get our guests. I think I'm going to have to start paying Neil like royalties for guests at this point. But this is a topic that we're going to talk about today. That I- you know, I've had quite a bit of involvement with, well, certainly on one side of it. We're going to be talking a little bit about desktop publishing and vintage Macs and how the two actually come hand in hand together. So would you please welcome my guest today, Dan Vincent. Hello, James. It's uh, it's great to be here today. Uh, this wonderful technology allowing us to connect uh, across the pond, as they say. <laughs> I love that term. It's, it's, I mean, you know, describing the Atlantic Ocean as a pond has always been one of my favorite things that people do. And like, that's definitely not a pond. It is a charmingly British expression. That's, that's the only way, you know, that it could have come about. <laughs> Was it, is it Google Maps? It was one of a mapping service where you put London to New York and it said swim. <laughs> uh, we do not recommend that. No, no, please don't attempt that. Even if you are the most experienced sea swimmer in the world, and I know someone who has done like the, the, the channel, channel swim, yeah. but no, don't do the Atlantic. Yeah. I mean, Crossed you know. Wires does not endorse the cool attempt of swimming across the Atlantic Ocean. No, not at all. Definitely not. So, Dan, thank you so much for joining me. For uh, oh, thank you for having me. So, just a bit of background for folks. The reason, well, not the reason Dan's here, but Dan very kindly stepped up to the plate when I said hey, I'm moving soon, I need to record some episodes so I don't have to <laughs> record while I'm turning down over the studio. So thank you very much. Dan, do you want to tell people a little bit about yourself, maybe a little bit of your background and, um, yeah, and sure. what you do, because you're a podcaster as well. Yes, I do. Uh, we'll get it off started. Uh, currently, the podcast that I'm doing is a sort of combo blog podcast thing because it's a it's a scripted show. Um, I I write the scripts and record it. And sometimes I do an off the cuff thing, even though I believe that I'm better when I have a moment to think about something versus, you know, just going and babbling all the time. Uh, that's called userlandia. You can find it over at userlandia.com. Uh, just getting ready actually on the finishing touches, uh, on the script for the next one for the next computers of significant history, a uh, little, uh, I'm not sure when you're, like I said, I know you're banking these. I'm not sure when this this will be out. Hopefully that will be out in, uh, towards the end of August, maybe, maybe mid end of August. We'll, we'll see what it actually turns out. Uh, cause I, I do have an editor, uh, a, a writing editor, uh, fellow friend of mine that I, that I work with, uh, to make me a little more coherent, mostly just to say, Hey, you know, are you sure about this or, you know, whatever, uh, so on and so forth. I mean, I figure a lot of people, when they introduce themselves in your show, I mean, we're both of the retro and vintage mind uh, on here. And I mean, obviously, because we crossed paths uh, via Neil's RMC Discord, uh, which is a, a nice, great little community of uh, maybe like-minded and not so like-minded individuals when it comes on which platform is the best platform, <laughs> which, you know, I always I always find that entertaining. I mean, uh, a quick rundown of, like, my computing history. I mean, I know you're a Commodore guy. Uh, my first computer was a Commodore 64. Uh, so we had that until the wonderful year of 1997. <laughs> so that was quite a long run on the 64. For wow. hours. I mean, we kind of became, feels like, oh, you still have a Commodore. Well, we'll go, we'll give you some of our Commodore stuff. And it just kind of hung around. And 
I, I mean, I tried, I mean, that's how it was in the nineties. I mean, my family was a very working class family. You know, my dad and my, he was working by himself by the time. Eventually my mom wound up working as well. It's like just the idea of spending $2,000 or whatever on a new PC clone, not even a, a Mac, just a, a PC. It just wasn't in the cards. And I didn't even get my own IBM PC. Com well, let me rephrase that. I picked up some computers from like the, I was kind of doing retro before we were doing it today. Like I had picked up an old IBM PS2 uh, 286 in like 1997, uh, which shared space with the Commodore because I could use that to dial into local bulletin boards. And then all that eventually went away. My uncle uh, took pity, or not so much pity, but uh, he he wound up buying a shiny new Pentium too. So he's like, well, my compact needs a place to go. So he brought his compact 486 over to our house. And so I had, that was our first like Windows-based machine. So now we could use the internet at home. Uh, until then, it's like for me to use the internet or browse the web, I had to, you know, stay after school, you know, because we had a computer lab and everything else there on Macintoshes. So that's basically it. And then from there, I mean, I was always a computer nerd, you know, always a geek, loved computer games, loved video games. I mean, we had a NES and a Super Nintendo. And but after that point, my older brothers were old enough that they could buy the newer consoles, like a PlayStation and an N64. So that's how we shared with each other. You know, the our my older siblings would buy it and then they'd sort of lose interest. And then myself and my younger sister would kind of sneak in and say, OK, now <laughs> while the cats are away, the mice will play. Like I said, I know you're a Commodore guy. I mean, I yeah. do have a, a bit of a soft spot for the Amiga, if only because, I mean, the guy who ran our Commodore user group who lived up the street from us had an Amiga. So I was able to see it. Uh, I, I believe he had a, he had an A1000 for a long, for a long time, uh, as well as his other Commodore stuff. And my, the first bulletin board I dialed into actually ran on an A4000. This was in like 1997. And that was right when that was starting to become, especially here in the States, you know, even if your A A4000 was tricked out with a bunch of stuff, it, it was getting really hard to stick yeah. with it. Because by 1997, the whole ESCOM thing had fallen through. Gate, you know, it was two years away from Gateway buying and, and doing stuff with it. So it really was, uh, you know, difficult for somebody to still be an Amiga fan and uh, that stuff all went away. And, of course, now we're kicking ourselves for getting rid of all of our, <laughs> all of our oh, stuff. Gosh, we're trying yeah. to get it back. So for me... I, I've, I'm not sure if this is the same for you, but for me, part of what I like about this retro stuff and vintage stuff, I, I, retro is an activity that you can, can perform on vintage hardware. I, I fall on that side of the divide uh, because you can do retro stuff on modern hardware. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a great example being, you know, the um, RetroPie on a, mm -hmm. well, I was going to say relatively affordable Raspberry Pi, but <laughs> relatively affordable and Raspberry yeah. Pi don't go in hand in hand right now because of a chip shortage. Everything's but, getting more expensive. Oh, it's, it's, it's crazy. But the point being, mm -hmm. um, you, as you said, you can, you know, even on an x86 PC, you can run RetroPie. But yeah, with actual vintage hardware, there are certain pieces of vintage gear that i would love to own i mean mm. you know as i said i've said on previous episodes when we've had dad wood on um i regret well, it wasn't my decision but i miss the a600 mm -hmm. uh, there are certain vintage Macs, and for me 
when I look at vintage mics, I talk anything power PC and and older, really. Yes. But you know, so for me, I've always wanted a G four lampshade. I'm I've got one right on the other side of the room. I mean, we're lousy with them here. It's like uh, if there's one thing that comes up on Craigslist every now and then, it's somebody looking to sell their eye lamp for you know whatever amount of money that they're willing to sell. I mean, for me, the only thing that does, it's a digital picture frame. It's a very mm. nice, pretty digital picture frame, but that's that's all I use it for, aside from, you know, looking nice. And I think one thing with that we might share on this, exploring this vintage stuff, it's like when we talk about across the pond, it's like for you guys, for me learning about all of the, just the storied history of British microcomputing over the past several years for me was a real sort of breath of fresh air. It's like, oh, here's a whole bunch of stuff I don't know about. You know, I can, you know, I just get into something and I just sort of, you know, just pull it all in and I sort of correct my own record on things. And, you know, it's what they say about English. You know, it's like we're two countries separated by a common language or something like that. And it's very much the same way with computers, even though we had Macs and IBMs, and you guys had Macs and IBMs. There was, you know, you guys had the Amiga longer for than we did, and the ST was much more popular over there than yeah. it was over here. But that's one thing that I find. It's like it's two sides kind of, I mean, like to rip each other every now and then. But I, I like how it's sort of these two sides sort of coming together and learning more about each other. You know, I mean, that's what I really like about the, the retro scene, at least. That's what I think. No, I, I agree with you. And it's really interesting because you're echoing a comment that uh, Ryan from Graphics Gear made in our last episode where we were talking about the differences where, you know, maybe in the US, classrooms would have been, you know, as you said, Mac, uh, classroom computer labs full of Macintoshes or earlier Apple IIs. Mm, yes. Whereas here, it would have been, you know, certainly in most primary schools, so elementary school for our, yourself and our American yeah. listeners, would have been probably BBC Micros mm. or BBC Masters by the time I started primary school. And then going into high school, we had Acorn Archimedes, at least until yep. all the labs got turned into. I think it was when Windows 98 became stable. I think this is what, yeah, this is what I said with Ryan. When Windows 98 became stable, our computer labs, labs started to become more and more just off the shelf, locally built Beige boxes. PCs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No more risk PCs. No more Archies. You know, it's uh, you know that's we had a risk PC. We had a risk PC in my lab. We weren't allowed to touch it. We <laughs> like we had. I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I don't think you'll ever listen to this episode, this show, so it's fine. We had this. We had two sort of computer teachers. One was very much like just a computer mm-hmm. IT helper, and one was an actual IT teacher. But one of them, and I've forgotten my gentleman's name, which is probably a good thing, <laughs> was always very grumpy with mm-hmm. the students and like blamed us if anything went wrong. And we weren't allowed his. We weren't allowed to, you know, have fun with his precious computers. Whereas the IT teacher, I remember having a vivid memory. He said, "Right, class, we're we're not going to do any studying today. You've studied hard enough. Um, I want you to put this disc into your machines. It's going to boot you up into DOS, and we're going to play a game." Mm. And we ended up. Was it? No, was it Doom? No, it wasn't Doom. It wasn't Doom Multiplayer. It was Quake. Oh, wow. We have the shareware Quake. And he said, right, if any of you tell the senior <laughs> staff, you are in trouble. And, I love it. I love and, it. And, I mean, our school network was so insecure. Um, so they all were back then. 
Oh, awful. So, well, they had authentication on all the machines. And you would have thought that we had network authentication. No. So I had a laptop that I used and uh, could plug into the network for printing and stuff. Mm. Well, I, without any authentication, was able to get into all of the school's files, including my friend's PE. Oh, um, boy. His ed, like, gray cheat. Oh, no. Yeah, see, back then, it's like, this was before Windows NT, so when we were doing everything on Windows 9X, the security mm. controls were just not... It's like you could come up and say, oh, please log in on Windows 9X. It's like, well, escape key, and then, yeah. you know, carry you on made. or whatever. And God forbid, by default, if file sharing had any security turned on, the odds are it wasn't. You know, that's... When Windows... Uh, XP came along and the majority of the school machines got the Windows XP or Mac OS X, all that went out the window and things wound up being a lot better. But you're you're not wrong. I mean, I I had some tales too from back of the day from us enterprising middle schoolers who were uh <laughs> you know who, you know, we were able to do a lot like our old Macs in the labs, because as you're mentioning in the UK you had BBCs and then you had the Archimedes until you went to PCs. For a lot of us here in the States, it was Apple IIs, and then those Apple IIs hung around in some cases for really long. Like, we didn't – some and our middle school didn't get rid of all of ours until, like, 1996, going wow. on into 1997. There, we, there were still plenty of Macintoshes, but the Apple II still kind of hung on. But by uh, – I want to say the – like, the 1996 was when stuff – they really got into just getting rid of – of all of it, you know, that, that was for us is like schools still hung on to, you know, we're still Macintoshes and so on and so forth for a really long time. Nowadays, it's all completely different. It's all Chromebooks and iPads and, and everything else. But it, it used to be that once upon a time, there was such a thing as the school computer, you know, that for, at least for us, like a, that's how I got into Macs was you know, using them in schools like nine, you know, picture yourself, this is 1994. So I would have been in fourth grade. I was probably just 10. To, I'm an April baby. So I was probably just turning 11 years old. I mean, at that time, I already had a reputation of being a, you know, computer geek. So there was me and one other kid in my class who's like, you know, one of the teachers said, we've got, we've got something special for you. And in they wheel the room on a cart because this is how they had to do This is a grade school. Yep. So the, even though all the classrooms had one Apple II in all, the, in all the grade school classrooms, there was the one Macintosh that was on a cart that could be wheeled around from room to room. And that was an LC2 with an Apple SCSI CD-ROM drive with the caddies. Oh, wow. So we, we had to be taught how to how to use the caddy. And on it was the Grawlier's Encyclopedia of 1992. And I got to tell you, that was, a, that was kind of a life-changing experience for me just to say, you know, first of all, actually learning what a Macintosh was, like getting taught, like, how does a mouse work? What do icons mean? How, you know, the, the Commodore, when I was done, you just flip the switch and you were done on a Mac. Yeah. No, 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 you can't do that on a Mac. You have to go Apple menu. Actually, no, it was, it was special menu back then and then shut down. And then, then when it said it's okay to turn off the computer, you could turn off. They had ink, you know, the inkjet printer. I mean, this machine back then, this is 1994, is an LC2. So that machine was still very, very new. They probably bought that a year prior that whole setup probably cost something with the CD-ROM drive and the style writer. That was probably a $3,000, $3,500 setup. 
So, because an LC2 back then, uh, just a base model was like fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars. A monitor on top of it was probably five, six hundred. The CD-ROM drive had to be at least maybe four hundred, and then the printer was like that's why they had it on the cart so they could bring it from room to room and everybody could. Yeah, because we could op- we could only afford one machine. Exactly. Yeah, I, <laughs> I can't remember us. I mean, we had that with like TVs and video players, but same. You know, I remember certainly in primary school. I think the computers were on carts, but I think we had it. We we well we had them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I would have been in, I started high school in 95, so about, mm-hmm. and our school system's a little bit different, so our grades are different, yeah. but, uh, you know, I would have been 11, and that's when we had by Archimedes, and we just had loads of them. You know, let's jump into the whole vintage Mac, yeah. because you've certainly got a lot more experience. Now, my experience with Macs before I became a Mac user, which was, a, you know, quite a long time ago now, but I joined the Mac world. No pun intended. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> I joined with a uh, 2006 Intel Core 2 Duo mm-hmm. iMac. Beautiful. What you know? It was gorgeous machine. But my previous experience had been my friend had a performer, and he was a very loud and proud Mac user. As they were you back in the, the 90s. We, I oh, know yeah. exactly the type of 90s Mac user that you're talking which will be relevant to the topic of this show. <laughs> so obviously most people know that the Mac was introduced in 1984 by Steve Jobs with that famous hello and the famous... The 1984. And, you know, what... Again, great machine. It popularised... I'm going to be very careful because <laughs> I, I don't want to say that it invented... The GUI because they didn't. They didn't. But it popularized it, brought it into, you know, sort of general use a GUI and a mouse. Most people, I'm going to guess most people's first experience with a mouse or any sort of GUI was a Mac. Yeah, that's probably a fair thing to say. At least if you're of a certain vintage, like our, our vintage. Um, you know, the funny thing is, like, there's, you know, as a computer, I, I can't. I can't call myself a historian. Saying I'm a historian is too, you know. I my degree is in art. I do not have a degree in library studies or anything that would make me qualified to say that I'm a historian. But as a person who likes to read a lot and a person who's just, you know, has a a thirst for knowledge, uh, the way that we talk about, you know, how mice and pointing and clicking and GUIs and everything got invented. It's just so complex with so many, you know, webs that tangle up. And like everybody knows the the classic story, the, you know, oh, as you said, here comes the Mac with all this and that. But and there's always the contrarians that come in and the contrarians will say, oh, they wouldn't stole that from Xerox. They did. But uh, apologies to all your to all of my (laughs) fellow uh, British friends, because like. For me, whenever I think of that sort of, you know, and this is our American stereotypes coming through. It's like, uh, you know, we, we think of these sort of stuffy upper crust, uh, you know, types. We always associate that with, and, you know, people say, there, I know there's at least 25 different accents all over England. People, you know, I live oh, in gosh, Massachusetts. Yeah. You know, everybody thinks, you're like, why don't you sound like pack the car and have it? Yeah. Well, most people don't talk that way, but even around Boston, we have like seven or eight individual accents just inside 
128 alone. That's completely off the thing. But when you get to those people who like to be, I don't want to say contrarian, but you know, they sort of have a thing where they say, oh, it's, they, I don't like them getting the credit or whatever. But you look at what happened with Xerox. It's like, A, Xerox never would have been able to capitalize on any. And that's a common story with the things that lead up to desktop publishing. Xerox didn't capitalize on multiple things, which is why all that happened. But also, they actually changed and invented a lot of new stuff to make the Macintosh the Macintosh. Like, if you look at Smalltalk, at the actual environment that ran on you know, the old Xerox machines, and then you look at what it became after when you had... Uh, the Xerox Star and the the further machines from Xerox, there are a lot of really interesting ideas and a lot of complexity in the user interface that came from that idea. Whereas you actually have these guys like Bill Atkinson and Andy Hertzfeld who took those ideas and uh, went and did all sorts of things. Because people, people don't realize is that what we had in the Mac and the overlapping windows and stuff, trying to do that on that level of hardware was unheard of. And they did it because... Uh, Bill invented QuickDraw, and and also for people listening, I'm I don't have any reference materials up. I'm going completely off the top of my head from stuff that I've read a bazillion times over again. If I make a minor factual error, please forgive me. If there's anything I hate, I hate being wrong. So always feel free to correct me. But those guys invented QuickDraw because. They thought that Xerox was doing these certain overlapping menus and windows things, and it turns out they weren't. It's more, it was more difficult than that. And then the Xerox guys are like, well, wait a minute. How did you do that? And that's how you got guys who came from Xerox to Apple to work on all – like Larry Tesler. They hired Larry Tesler to come over to Apple, not just for stuff that he did at Xerox, but because they want him to be their, you know, their programming – guy like their guy who would say you know who he really believes in object oriented programming and that's what they wanted to do on the Macintosh and that's a whole nother kettle of fish oh that's a that's a yeah. huge that's a huge topic just to talk about there yeah. when we look at you know the roots of Objective-C and far many you know where we stand today you know the fact that we owe pretty much every iPhone app to that original like it's it's mind blowing where we are. We're you know, incredibly I, lucky that it worked out that way. <laughs> yeah, because you know, but as an aside, obviously before we, you know, the iPhone really started to popularize the concept of mobile apps. Can anyone say Java? Like, <laughs> Java to me. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So well, did you? So as another little aside, mobile apps. Like I don't know if you were a PDA guy or not. I was. I had so I had a few. I had two palms. Okay. I had a well. I had a, actually no. It was a handspring visor. Mm-hmm. Visor Pro. Me I think too. I had, and then I went to the Palm Tungsten T2. Okay. Yeah, which was a wonderful little device. Which was after handspring sort of. There's a whole other story around it. And yes, I, I'm looking at just a little spoiler for people. I am looking at maybe doing an episode about that. I want to. I'm trying to get hold of some early PDAs. But then I moved to don't laugh too much. I, won't. I moved to Windows Windows Pocket PC. Windows I had Pocket PC. So the funny thing you mentioned that is because we had a very similar trajectory because I had a handspring visor platinum. That was my first mm. PDA. I got that I wanna say it was a birthday present. I was in high school. I must have been sixteen or seventeen years old. That was my birthday present for the year. Um, and then I had that, I broke the digitizer, I fixed it, but then I upgraded to the, 
the Casio Cassiopeia E125, the single greatest pocket PC that ever existed. Yes. And you know why it was the greatest. Number one, it had the best screen. Number two, it had a compact flash slot that you didn't need a freaking sled for like the compacts. And also the button arrangement, they put a cross button on the left side and three buttons on the right side so you could play it like a Game Boy if you wanted to yes. play games. It was yes. the best one. It's like I'm always buying these either pocket PCs or Minolta cameras or all sorts of other things that were, you know, the sort of third rung at the time or however that you say. And that has that connection with Larry Tesler because he was really involved with the Newton. And, yes. you know, and those yes. guys went off to go do their things. And the Palm came up as competition to that. You had the Scion and all this handheld computing stuff that took us like 10, 15 years to get to where the average person could use it as opposed to a nerd. And that was the same thing with the Mac. You know, because one thing I like about old Macs is that they're all weird in their own ways. Even the ones that are kind of run of the mill, you know, they, they all have their, you know, their little idiosyncrasies. And, you know, if I put down and say, okay, what can I think is my favorite, like, I mean, we all have our eras of Macs. Mm. You know, we have our 68K era. We have our PowerPC pre-OS 10 era. Then there's the OS 10 power, the post-jobs OS 10 PowerPC era. And then there's Intel and everything else. And if, if I had, if you had to ask me, it's like, Dan, if you had to have one Mac of those, of those eras, which would you pick? And you know, I got to say, as dumb as they are and as bad as they are, I have a real soft spot for these all-in-one performers. Um, you, yes, yes. Now there's more than one of them. There's the, the first all in one performer, which is kind of like the outgrowth of the color classic. Those are the 500 series, the, the five twenties, the five forty fives, five eighties, the, they're the hook code name, uh, the Macintosh TV, which I own. Uh, that's a, oh, okay. that's a story I can tell later. And then those got replaced by machines that looked nicer but were materially worse, which are the Power Mac 5000 series, which were kind of like proto iMacs in sort of their all-in-one nature. Those machines I don't like very much, even though the by the time they got to the 200, 300 megahertz power PCs, they sort of worked out all the bugs. Those old 68K all-in-ones, I mean – that's a, that was a formative experience for me because those were the the Macs that we had in like the middle school lab. You know, they had a CD-ROM drive. They had everything you needed and nothing you didn't. And they were not great Macs, but – and they were kind of ugly too. But I have a soft spot for them. Now, if you could only have one Mac of all time, it would have to be a PowerPC G4 Tower. I mean, that's the the only one you could have if you could only have one of those PowerPC Macs. <laughs> so, but you and you say that, but of course, there are multiple variants of mm -hmm. of that G4. Now, it's worth probably mentioning at this point when we talk about the different eras. So, after Steve Jobs left, the Macintosh product line would it be fair to say became very overpopulated? Well, not well. It took a little bit until after it's. It's funny how you say that because. 
the overpopulation took several years to come about, and that really was with the performers. Before the performers, because that's when they really decide, okay, we want to expand our market share. How do we do that? We flood the retail channels. If we, They were absolutely convinced if they just put a Mac, it didn't matter what Mac, just a Mac in front of people, surely the superiority of the Macintosh would convince people to just up and buy it with no problem. That wasn't really the case. But I'm... We're getting ahead of ourselves. So you have that, you know, Steve leaves in 1985. You have about five years where you have the Macintosh 2 era. You get into the early LC era. And then you get into the Performa or what I, I mean, I like to call it the beleaguered era because we're talking like 1993 into 1994. You know, when things, you know, Scully leaves, we've got Spindler, everything starts going sideways. And then Gil Emilio comes in, and that's when we start getting into the faster power PCs, you know, the G3s and things like that. Steve comes back. By then, absolutely, there was Apple's rudderless. You know, for a company that was inventing so many great ideas, I mean, QuickTime, we owe the entirety of online video as we know it to QuickTime. You know, and not just QuickTime, you had people producing all these really interesting technologies that would end up being useful for the most part. I mean, OpenDoc is OpenDoc. I don't think anybody has ever been able to make a, a compelling case as to why a normal person would want to do that. But so suffice to say that you know, Apple, by that time, they really had lost their way. And there was just so, there was so many things that they just didn't know what you were doing. And then we had the clones, you know, the, the clone era, which people look back fondly. I mean, I know you guys had clone, the Mac clones over in the UK as well. Um, I know you guys had probably more like the, the UMAX clones. I think. I think we would have had more like more of a UMAX from a power computing. Yeah. And so, and again, just, just to clue people in, these are where Apple said, okay, Anyone with a license can make Mac hardware and can, which a lot of people now would love to do, mm. run Mac. Well, okay, they the try. Hackintosh community. They, they try. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> let's not get. We could get a hole into that, yeah. area, but they could run licensed copies of certain versions of macOS. I think my license was good. Was it good up until macOS eight? I think. Yeah, and originally they were yeah. going to clamp it before that, but what wound up happening was, you know, after. A lot of people got really mad. Apple wound up buying power computing, and they wound up being a little more lenient on where that would where that would fall down. I mean, I own a clone. I have a power computing clone that's uh, over on the other side of the room with a matching monitor. Uh. Well, didn't correct me if I'm wrong. Apple were not the first. Um, this is uh, if I've got this wrong, please do correct me. Sure. Power computing released the first multiprocessor Mac, not Apple. Uh, I actually think it was Daystar that well, it might did it be Daystar first because it was it is Daystar, so it is yep. da- Daystar MP. Sorry, my apologies. No, nope, yes. that's okay. And you know that's funny. That's a great uh, segue into uh, you know into the Max real big community and why Daystar released that dual processor Mac clone and eventually did upgrade cards for other Macs and Apple licensed that technology from Daystar as well. They did that because the Mac, what kept Apple alive during all those beleaguered years, aside from, you know, whatever they could scrape out from the retail sales, was the desktop publishing and electronic prepress community. They were the ones that 
kept Apple in business and were probably most of the really obnoxious people that were coming to your <laughs> knocking on your door and said, have you heard about the joy of Macintosh today? <laughs> I would love if that's the thing instead of Jehovah's Witnesses coming around, you've got Mac users. It certainly felt that way. Uh, and yeah. I, I mean, I fully admit to be, I mean, I consider myself a technology enthusiast. You know, I'm not a, I mean, I can certainly get a little fanish sometimes. I and mean, we all get a little fanish oh, sometimes. Can, yeah. But I consider myself first an enthusiast of technology, whether it's, you know, classic PCs, modern PCs, modern Macs, vintage Macs, all the retro stuff and things that I missed out on when I was a kid, you know, like Amigas and STs. And it's like, I'd love to have uh, an Amiga or ST in my house of my own. You know, it's just, to me, just that stuff is just all so neat, but there's just something. And I know, especially with the, with the Amiga and especially with the ST, you know, I have a feeling that even though you see people ragging all the time saying, oh, the fastest way to own a Mac is to buy an Amiga and run Shapeshift. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, well, there's more, there's more to it than that. I mean, it's one of those things where Obi-Wan would say it's true from a certain point of view. And I have a feeling that for a lot of Mac and Amiga and ST users, they're a lot more alike than they are different. You know, I think a lot of people would say that, they they have a lot of similar things that come into that. And so in the 90s, you had that certain kind of really, especially in the States, a really annoying Mac user who would say, oh, the Mac is the best at everything. And the, the hard thing is that for a lot of things, they were right. And that's why people didn't like them, because they were right. They weren't right yeah. on everything. But in a lot of ways, they were right until Windows 95 came around, plug and play came around. You know, the PC slowly and then Apple, of course, mismanaging everything else into the ground yeah. gave them the opportunity to catch up. And so with that Daystar clone, the reason why it was so popular was because that machine would literally pay for itself. If you worked in electronic prepress or desktop publishing and you ran Photoshop all day long, because at that time, that was the only thing that could take advantage of the second processor yeah. was Photoshop because Adobe had coded it and say, okay, we can do this with this and certain filters and processes that we, literally you could slash that time in half. If that took a, you know, a flattening or a compositing time down from say 15 minutes to seven minutes, you can get a lot more work done. And that's why, you know, those things got so popular. And that's why of like a lot of people I know who are from that, community it's i was part of it as well they loved those machines and they cried so hard when apple came back it turned out to be for the better for everybody but uh you know it's an interesting community uh, i mean you mentioned earlier that you said you had some kind of experience i mean i'm before i go off on my tangent i'm curious i mean what's your sort of experience well that's a really good question so desktop publishing obviously when i you know started going into high school Desktop publishing was very established, and mm -hmm. obviously on my Mac side, you, you had all the high-end Quark Express. But my first real experience with desktop publishing was, don't, don't laugh, Microsoft Publisher. I won't laugh. I mean, that's a lot of people's. My first, I guess technically my first experience with desktop publishing was Spinnaker Newsroom. I think it was Spinnaker that did it, uh, Newsroom on the Commodore 64, which even though it's uh, – maybe even the print shop counts. I mean, I know you guys have oh, the yeah. print shop over there. That, I yeah. would say, from a certain point of view, <laughs> that does count as desktop publishing, you know, making your signs and greeting cards. like yeah. banners, yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, we're I mean, we're both like I said of a similar vintage. We know by you know by the '90s, this stuff had completely taken over. And you know, I mean, you still had people doing things old ways, and there's still ways older ways of doing things that are still useful from an artistic point of view. But for the workaday publisher, I mean, things had just taken over completely. You know, and I think people sort of underestimate if like if you're not in that sort of environment, if you're not in DTP, if you're not in printing or pre-press or whatever, what happened with that was just a complete sea change of how things operated. It was it's like you could take a guy from the 70s and put him into the 90s and he would go, "My god." You know, it, it would it would be a mind-blowing experience for them. My father actually worked in the print industry, okay, in the newspaper industry, but not on the pre-press side. Mm-hmm. My dad's a print engineer. He's a very good one. Uh, I'm very, very proud of my my father's done a lot. So did he run uh, a press? Really uh, yeah, he was. Okay. Um, so we we moved to where we lived before because my dad got a job as um, was it cheap. Chief Mechanical Engineer Designate. It's when, back in the days when you'd actually start your job before you're the person you're taking over for. Left, right. And they would train <laughs> you. But, you know, because of that connection, he got me in to do some apprenticeship, not apprenticeship, because like some work experience mm-hmm. stuff in IT, because I was interested in computers. And that was my first experience of pre-press Macs. Like, so the rest of the business are all on, you know, like Gateway 2000 exactly. PCs. The front office. But the pre-front office is all on Gateway 2000s, you know, and we had people break, breaking their cup holders, all of that sort of stuff. And the pre-press team and the journalists are all on Macs. Yep. And I remember seeing for the first time the blue and white G3s in an entire, you know, an entire office. It was an incredible experience. I, I actually helped try and um, upgrade them. I think it was yeah, upgrade to a version of Mac OS 8 for... Like someone taught me how to do that on a G3 iMac, so that was my first experience. But we talk about sort of desktop publishing, and correct me if I'm wrong. So the traditional way is very much sort of manual layout mm-hmm. on sheets, and then you know it's literally cut and paste. Yeah, yeah. So to give an idea, like in what I like to call the bad old days. You had multiple levels of how things work. So imagine in your mind, we're going back 70 years, 60, 70 years. We're thinking in like terms of the 60s and the 70s. Okay. So you had multiple levels of how things work. You had guys in the very low end with like their mimeographs or whatever. You know, Xeroxes were just invented. That sort of stuff where you could do literal cut and paste. Well, you think about, well, what am I cutting and what am I pasting? How do I get from there to here? So you think, okay, well, if I want artwork, I have to go to the actual book of clip art and clip it out of the book, hence the name. And then if you want text, you either had to sit there with your typewriter and type up a, you know, if you're really low budget operation, you sit there with a typewriter and, you know, type it out and then into blocks and cut, as you say, cut and paste the blocks with wax onto a master sheet, which would then say, if you knew somebody with a Xerox machine, they could Xerox it for you. Or you knew somebody with a duplicator who could take it and photograph it, and then they would photograph it and it would get made into a like a low-end plate. Because even in those old days, they could photographically make that sort of stuff. And even before that, like we had letterpress. You know, that's where you would actually take movable type and in lead and 
cast it and make a plate based on or even just take letterpress and press it directly into the paper mm. or cast a plate based on the movable type you know there's a whole very fascinating you know history of printing yeah, and everything else yeah. by the 70s we had electronic photo typesetting so what you could do is you had a, a linotype machine by the it used to be linotype you would do it you'd type on a linotype it would take all the little metal bits of fonts and arrange the metal bits into blocks that would then get cast with everything else. By the time we had electronic photo typesetting, the linotype machines now, you sit in front of it and it would expose, it would photographically expose each letter onto the row and it would print out these like long strips of type that you would then cut up and paste up yeah. or, or everything else. And then this is where the Xerox connection comes back into place. The very early, you know, I hate saying GUI, but the very, those very early Xerox systems, like we're talking like early 70s here, those were designed primarily as advanced word processing machines that would have layout capabilities that we would look at it and see, okay, when he puts this document together, this is used by the U.S. government post office, this is for typesetting, you would recognize it very much as something similar to Microsoft Word today. And the reason why is the guys who invented that were the same guys who Microsoft hired to make Microsoft Word. So, you know, that's, that's just how it goes for you. Uh, Charles Simone is, uh, and him and two other guys, I believe, from Xerox were largely responsible for that. So all of this comes together where it's a lot easier than it was with movable type, but it's still not accessible to the average everyday person. Like the normal person can't go and buy one of these machines and do it. No. In no. Impossible. So then you have the Macintosh. It was three things that made the Macintosh, like it primed it for it. First was PostScript which came from Warnock and Gershke at Adobe, who came from Xerox, of course. They left Xerox to go make Adobe. You had the Apple Macintosh. Apple made the laser writer with a Canon engine and PostScript. They put that all together, and then Paul Brainerd, who founded Aldus, created PageMaker. And that is like the actual basis. of. You can draw a straight line from there to what every graphic designer is doing today in InDesign, or if you are still a masochist, still using Quark Express. Um, <laughs> I, I have opinions about, about Quark. So all that, like, you can draw that straight Just line Just to be clear, we do, mean, we do mean the software Quark, not the Deep Space Nine character Quark. <laughs> you know, I, uh, it's funny you mention that, because even though Quark the company predates Quark the character, I mean, you, at least you can say that Quark the character had some kind of ethics and moral compass. I'm not sure you could say that about Fred Ibrimi at Quark the Company. Now, Tim Gill, he's a different story. He's the other guy who's responsible for Quark. He's, you know, we, we'll talk about him later. But, yeah. you know, the, with the way Quark the Company treated their customers sometimes, you have to wonder, you know, would Quark the character actually treat you a little more fairly? <laughs> And, and this is a Ferengi, by the way. So for anyone who doesn't know, Ferengi have a reputation in Star Trek for being... The rules of acquisition. Yes. You know, yes. it's like they... I mean, like I said, Quark, the Ferengi, like the Ferengi have the reputation of being, oh, they like money. You know, they're, they're hyper-capitalists. That's what they are. Mm. They, especially in Deep yeah. Space Nine, when they finally 
nailed what a Ferengi actually was versus the sort of stereotypes that they used for them kind of back in Next Generation. You know, we actually got a little more of that in DS9, but at least, like I said, the character of Quark, he obeys those rules of acquisition and to, to, his, to his detriment sometimes in yes. the he leaves money on the table. You know, there's, there's different kinds of profit than money. I'll, I'll say that. And Quark is a Quark the character demonstrated that several times. But enough about Star Trek. Anyway, yes. <laughs> so we're getting here in desktop publishing and the Mac was so instrumental in that happening because even though PageMaker was available on other platforms, it was available it came out on Windows eventually. I have actually a copy of old Windows PageMaker, like version four up here I found in thrift store. Um, Windows, the Windows version of PageMaker came out like a year and a half after the Macintosh one. But the Mac w just provided this opportunity to for that to happen. And, you know, I always see people sort of coming out of the woodwork. And as a, I know as an Amiga user, this is, this is where I usually hear it from, is that, well, well, yes, well, the Amiga could do this too. Or, oh, the ST could do it too. And I'm like... You're not wrong, but it's a case where the reason why it was the Macintosh was the screen. And, you know, we're always riffing, especially me as a, as a Commodore user, like, why would I care about a machine that can't do colors? You know, colors. It's like, that's what I want is a color display and so on and so forth. And that's what Amiga users would say. And even though the ST had its high resolution monochrome display, I mean, generally, people cared about those machines because they cared about color. But because the Mac had an actual fairly high-resolution monochrome screen with actual bitmap graphics with no interlacing, and so people saying, well, my machines can do that, but it's, you know, it's just one of those cases where Commodore didn't have the company culture to be able to do that. Atari didn't either. You know, they wouldn't have... They wouldn't have pushed that as much as Apple did, even though Jobs was out the door largely by the time that happened. The stuff that he put in place, especially with the laser writer, made it, made it all happen. And to think now, you know, that stuff cost a bazillion dollars back in the day. So we say, oh, a normal person can do it. We're thinking in scales of, you know, with your Amigas and our Commodores, we say, okay, well, we're normal people. We can go and buy this computer a Commodore 64 for three, four hundred dollars. I can go buy an Amiga, you know, one thousand for eleven, twelve hundred dollars, and be able to do all this cool stuff with it that would have cost many thousands of dollars before. But a Macintosh with this stuff, let's say with a laser writer, you'd spend ten thousand dollars out the door to do this stuff to replace machines that would have cost ten times as much. It, it, it's insane just how much more accessible that is. It's like today these numbers sound made up you know they, it doesn't make any sense you know but for people who are like i don't want to i want to be able to do this in my house and not have to go to a shop it was crazy you know that's what that's why i like so much about that era <laughs> it, it's it's incredible and you know as you said we've got old, oldest page maker which you know i had definitely heard of you know again i've not used these tools Obviously, we were, you know, high-resolution monochrome display, which is great for text, mm. great for page layout. I mean, you know, you can't do color graphics, but I'm guessing most people were still working with monochrome at that point, so it didn't really matter. Well, so what happened was, is that the first versions of PostScript, which was really the the basis upon how we were able to do all this in the first place, is PostScript. That's really the bedrock found. Without PostScript, 
it would have been a lot gnarlier because you think well, think about the old days of a printer. You know, you have say your dot matrix printers or whatever. It's like oh, well, gosh, yeah. uh, you know, it's like well, we can send characters and we can send bitmaps, but you have to think about everything for every specific printer in the world. I'm sure you remember. You know, say, oh, on, on the Commodore 64 or other things like that, saying, oh, I'm using my program. I have to pick the specific printer. And if I don't pick the specific printer when I print, everything's going to come out as garbage, you know? Yeah. And that was true for a lot of computers back then. Well, the PostScript made this device independent. So instead of saying, okay, I'm going to draw these pixels to these pixels, PostScript says, well, describe how you want to draw this in a computer language. And then on the printer, there is an interpreter that goes and interprets the language specifically for that device. So that was all baked into a printer so that, again, Mm -hmm. any program could write to PostScript. Now, please correct me if I'm wrong. PostScript, do we owe the origins of modern PDFs to PostScript as well? Yes, we do, because PDF uh, is basically PostScript. It is a very different it's like a further advancement of PostScript. It's a containerized version of PostScript. But if you're used to thinking in the way of PostScript, then you can look at a PDF file and say, oh, yes, well, I recognize these rects here. I recognize these dictionaries and so on and so forth. They're not, you know, they're not too dissimilar. What makes PDF PDF is that it's a kind of displayable PostScript that you yeah. don't have to go and laboriously render to a high resolution print style device. I mean you you can you can do that's yeah. how modern raster image processors work. But that is we owe PDF without postscript there would be no PDF. That's that's basically it. It's also worth saying that because that was built into a Macintosh uh, you know the system uh, and then macOS it's why on a Mac even to this day you don't need a third party PDF Mm-hmm. tool because Macintosh is still based has a lot of the PostScript technology still baked into it. Well see that's where we get into the weeds because on Mac OS 10 what we know of as core graphics which is really the display layer is built on several technologies one of which is PDF based which is the Quartz image interpreter. And yes, so the yeah. Quartz Quartz is what we would call, say, display PDF, as opposed to on the next or certain workstations, we would have display PostScript. But the idea is the same. It's saying, okay, instead of thinking like in Windows terms, if in Windows they think of GDI, you know, you use GDI to draw your primitives and, and so on and so forth. But on a next, you think, well, we're going to write out PostScript code, and then the interpreter takes the display PostScript interpreter is what actually rasterizes it and draws it all on the screen. And on the Mac, even though Quartz is slightly different than how uh, how that worked, it's the fundamental idea is still the same. All of the what you see on a Mac as graphics in Windows are all defined in a PDF context that then gets rendered to the actual, the composited, I should say, rendered and then composited to the display via the Windows server. So that's why, on as you say, on the Mac, you can just go and say, oh, I'm going to print a PDF of this, and it's just done, because that's how, the, that's how the system thinks. And that's, we owe a lot of that to, I mean, the idea of that, doing that, you know, in the 80s would have seemed insane, and it was with Display PostScript, because it was really slow. But we, we advance, you know, that's how, that's how things go on. 
So obviously, you know, we talked we talked about Aldous Paint. Just just so I understand by the way, it, sure. I know Quark is still around because I looked it up mm-hmm. earlier. Where do we st- is PageMaker still a product? Or is it that is not bought. So it, that's an interesting story. So Quark Express still exists. So the the very short background history of this week in '86, we got PageMaker from Aldous. I want to say it was late 87 or early 88 that we got Quark, the first version of Quark Express. From a Wikipedia I read earlier, 87. 87. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm seeing, I still remember this stuff. And so Quark very quickly overtook PageMaker uh, for, for, as far as like the actual workaday graphic designers tool. And the reason why Quark took over was it had this sort of uh, frame methodology of thinking of things and its mathematics was extremely precise like you could position something in quark to like tens hundreds thousands of a point which when you think of a point is 172nd of an inch and then you get to even further fractions of that and quark would consistently put it in that same place every time and quark was extremely extensible I mean, we look at its UI now, you look at that old UI and say, how the heck did we ever do anything with this? But in hidden in there was this kind of crazy logic that once you learned it, you know, you, you see a person who knows those quark key commands, just like somebody who knows the Photoshop key commands. They just go completely insane with it. And so quark basically put PageMaker down to a lower end product. So, and then, so what happened was Adobe buys Aldis not just for PageMaker, but for other products that Aldous is doing at the time. And the people who are doing PageMaker are like, well, PageMaker is not, we can't make that into a real core competitor. So they decide to start a new project, which is codenamed K2. And if they started, I want to say like maybe 94 is when it starts. And we see the first version of it come out in 1999, I think, as the first version of Adobe InDesign. So you can say that even though InDesign is not PageMaker, a lot of the people who worked on K2 were people who were working on PageMaker and back in the day and moved so on. It has, DNA, it has some DNA of PageMaker from the yeah. team who built it. It is yeah, very okay. much, an, especially those early versions, are especially an Aldis-style product that has been – that said, well, we're Aldis. We want to take a bunch of stuff from the Adobe cookie jar. And that's what they did. To in order to make InDesign do what it did, and you know we had the the big battle between them and Quark. Fred Ibrahimi famously telling people to say, "Well, if you don't like that, uh, you know, Quark Five doesn't run a Mac OS X, uh, switch to something else." And then people did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, InDesign still used. You know, it's still it's the number one product. Pro- it's the number one, and it's interesting. But you know, we owe so much of. You know, the accessibility to do, you know, Mm -hmm. so Photoshop, I think, I have a feeling started on my Mac. It did. As well. Um, So I believe um, I'm pulling back my my Photoshop history memory here. So Photoshop started as a project of the Knoll brothers, who are, you know, Thomas Knoll and John Knoll, who at the time were working for Industrial Light and Matt, they were working with Lucasfilm. You know, they were a lot of, I mean, John Knoll especially was a long time, you know, visual effects for that. And that's where they got their start with that. And the first, you know, Photoshop started as their way of manipulating digital images 
to to do those things and then it grew out from there you know eventually got ported to windows you know nowadays everybody thinks of adobe as the as the photoshop company and rightfully so because a lot of people use photoshop for a lot of things but that wasn't how adobe built their fortune they built their fortune off of postscript both for licensing postscript postscript type one fonts which was their real money maker that was the thing that i mean that's a whole nother story in itself and then illustrator you know which is adobe's oldest like really consumer facing product which illustrator is basically just a graphical editor of postscript and now pdf you know that's that's really what illustrator is and so we have these toolkits that these disparate things that let people do stuff that would be otherwise really either expensive from a time standpoint or a money standpoint or just from a practicality standpoint because yeah i mean think before photoshop we used to have raster image editors before photoshop but you needed dedicated machines to do it you know uh there was deluxe paint on the amiga you know, but Deluxe Paint was a different, even though it was also a, a raster editor, it was a slightly different kind of product than Photoshop, even though it became more Photoshop-like as time went on. We had those kind of things, but they were very, they were, I mean, Deep Paint wasn't hard to use. I mean, I've, I've used Deep Paint. It's easy to use. But to do certain things like l image layering, you know, which, I mean, that was a real, Photoshop brought that to people who had never done that before. I mean, it's, it's just mind blowing what we can do. And now, of course, now you don't, it used to be, if you wanted to be serious about that, you'd do that on a Mac. And that's why your prepress department was all Macs. You know, nowadays you can do it on a PC. I mean, granted, I do all my, my photo editing, my illustrator stuff in design, anything I do that I do do on a windows machine. You couldn't do that 25 years ago for a variety of reasons. A lot of people still work primarily on a Mac today for a lot of other reasons. And that's, I, I mean, I think that's the real legacy of that stuff is just that it, without that desktop publishing market, without electronic prepress, Apple would have died. You know, yeah. they, they were the, that was the reason they were around, you know. And it's fascinating, you know, now we see newer companies coming along and challenging Adobe's. Mm -hmm. I mean, I say challenging, but I think they're doing a great job of it. I, I, I am a huge fan of their products and I'm talking about Affinity. Yes, uh, by Serif. Serif, absolutely. I love Serif. They're they're good guys. So, we, I mean, we've gone an hour into this. I haven't even given like my background and why I know so much about this crap. Yeah, please do tell it. Yeah, <laughs> so, do. I mean, I the first time I saw actual live Photoshop, I want to say it was like 1997. I saw it running on a Mac, and I'm like, okay, uh, that's I want to do that. I want to be in computer graphics. That's what I want to do because I was already a computer, and it's like, well. I like art. I like computers. Can't I just make the Reese's peanut butter cup? I'll just smush them all together. I'm like, yeah, I can do that. So that's what got me into taking an art career more seriously. I got into traditional graphic design. I, at school, I mean, I learned the practicalities of how that stuff was made. Like, I know how to run a press. I, you know, we had our graphics, graphic design program with graphic arts. We knew how to run presses. We knew how the bindery worked because you're making a physical thing. Like you can design something on a computer that is completely unprintable. You can add the computer will let you hang yourself all day long if you don't know those intricacies. And so that's how I got that background. And I actually worked, I was in the business for like 20 something years. I worked, I was a 
17-year-old kid, I was working at a local print shop as their in-house graphic designer, <laughs> which is which was pretty fun. I went off to college to get my art degree, you know, get my, my bachelor's in art. Um, I worked at another, uh, as another, like, in-shop designer for a while. And then in 2007, I was hired uh, by a company that I guarantee nobody here listening will know. It was a company named Rampage. And Rampage uh, was a raster image uh, workflow manufacturer. They don't exist anymore. I know you just had Paul and the guys from Pixel Addict and Amiga Addict on the other week. When they go to print that magazine, they can take their InDesign files and bundle it all up, or they can take uh, a PDF and give it to the printer. That PDF has to go on the press somehow. How do they get it on the press? Whether it's a digital press or the old school style press, all those pages have to be rendered and rasterized. And so you have these systems designed purely around high-speed rendering of PDFs and PostScript that then lay them out on the big flats, which then get made into plates, and then the plates go and get put on the press. So that's what we did at Rampage. We took those PDF files and PostScript files and rasterized them and made a workflow around them to, because you could sit there and render each one, and it's our, the idea is to you know replace the old jobs. Because I'm sure as your dad was worked in a print shop, and you knew those old electronic prepress in the days, in the olden days before direct to plate, you made film, and then you took the film and you stripped them up into the flats. You know the guy who the the only job their job was was to tape them up on the flats, cut out the the stuff, and expose them onto the plates. Then that was replaced by direct to plate. That's what these systems were done. And uh, our system was powered by uh, Harlequin, which is by Global Graphics, which is Cambridge-based, you know. So there's the the UK connect. I mean, we actually have a Global Graphics office uh, out here near where I am in, in Waltham. I believe they're still out there, last I checked. But the basically, that's my background is when people – I worked in QA for this product – so our job was to make sure that people don't screw up when they're doing it. And if something does screw up and our field techs can't figure it out or whatever, they'd break glass and call us on the telephone and say, hey, we need you to put this in front of the developer or whatever. And, you know, say, okay, that we uh, one of the many things that we did. So, you know, that's like my experience. It's just like as as a working designer and as the person who worked on the products that actually made those into the stuff that the press people would use you know i've seen like kind of like both sides of that coin and just how computer technology has really advanced that you know it's, it's really quite interesting it really is and you know it's funny you mention cuz it wasn't a print shop that my dad worked at it was a newspaper oh yes so this is huge and if I, if i say the name goss yes i know recognize. goss yep i know yeah. goss well, that's where my dad started his career. But it's interesting because, you know, I remember I worked there. I worked in inserting. So basically, for those who don't know what inserting is, putting <laughs> one newspaper inside of another yep. when the machinery failed, and it failed a lot. Yes. You know, walking through the plate-making department to get to our department, you could smell the film mm-hmm. fumes. And, it's again, it's just fascinating seeing how far we've come. As you said, we've now got direct-to-plate. But it's still all based on a PDF. Now, you mentioned one thing, which I think a lot of people in this digital age won't think of. Okay. Because, you know, I can design something in Affinity Designer or mm-hmm. Affinity um, Publisher because that's their um, InDesign alternative. But I could design something. But if I don't know, you know, bleeds and 
the, mm-hmm. the crop marks and the right, you know, safe areas and things like that. That maximum ink density. Exactly. I'm not going, and I hand that off to a printer, you know, to be printed for leaflets, for example. I'm going to get laughed at. Well, you're not necessarily going to get laughed. So one of the things that I did at Rampage was that I was in charge of our uh, pre-flighting product that we had inside the workflow. So like at the take a newspaper, for instance. So when they're putting the newspaper together, um, they have ads, for example. They have to put the ads, PDF files or whatever ads all over the newspaper. They get those ads from who knows where. And those files could have all kinds of problems. So what happens is those files get scanned ahead of time to say, hey, we noticed these potential problems. These are what these problems could be. And then the pre-press operator says, well, we don't care. Or, well, yes, I need to kick this back to the customer. So in your case, let's say if you didn't have any, you say, well, I'm making a business card. In the United States, our business cards are three inches wide by two and a half tall. Okay. I think in the UK, there's something like, uh, I used to have this memorized. It's, it's amazing how I've forgotten it, uh, in certain, centi- uh, certain millimeters or whatever. But so what happens is, oh, well, wait a minute. You don't have your three millimeters of bleed around. I still remember that exact number though. Uh, you don't have your three millimeters of bleed around your thing. They're going to flag it and they're going to come back to you said, Hey, you know, we can't, you know, we can't print this like this, you know, either you can pay us to fix it or we can kick it back to you and you can fix it and then so on and so forth. So that's another thing where computers really come into play is to say, you know, I as as a designer who is saying, okay, I'm putting these things together. I've designed this fancy, fancy book and I've sent this off and generally a trained designer will know what they can and can't do. But even then there's things that you don't foresee that could that could potentially be an issue. And that's one of the things that we do is say, hey, step back a minute. What could these potential problems be? Because when you make those plates and you get something on press, make ready is expensive. Plates are expensive. Time is expensive. You make mistakes. You are costing like that. That company loses money every time there's a mistake. So that's what because rasterization and stuff, you know, it gets better is kind of I don't want to say it's a solved problem, but it's something where it's it's not glamorous. It's not something where if you're trying to sell it to somebody, they can say, well, we're not going to give you another $10,000 for your product this year because you didn't put in something that would save us X amount of dollars or whatever. That's what these people are buying. And that's where the market is really going these days. I mean, are you familiar at all with like the how things are on the digital side of things like digital print production? I have to admit, I'm not. It's not. It's not an an area of the industry I've had any experience with. That's okay, but it's one way that people are making their margins these days. Because when Rampage went out of business, I was bought. Uh, our comp- we were bought out, acquired, I should say, by Fujifilm. And okay. Fujifilm, uh, Fuji they have a. I mean, I have colleagues in the UK, former colleagues who worked at Fujifilm UK. Um, and we had our own workflow product. But one thing with that workflow product is that we had a digital press. And the idea is that with digital press, you don't need plates. You print from the press directly to the paper. In most cases, most digital presses, they're just fancy Xerox machines. You know, most of them are. But then you get to more interesting things like the HP Indigo which is something which is not a toner base. It's a liquid dot based type thing. And then at Fujifilm, we had a product called the J press or in Europe, I believe they call it the jet press. You can't call it the, in the United States, I guess. Uh, so the idea behind the J press is 
I mean, everybody knows Epson printers, right? Or Canon bubble jet printers or our standard inkjet printer. Think, I mean, you probably have one in your house right now. When those printers print, your print head goes zoop, zoop, zoop. You know, it just goes horizontally across the platen and lays down the ink in these raster lines. So you say, okay, well, I'm, I'm used to that. Now think of it this way. Instead of having a head that moves across the sheet, instead, you say, what if we made a head that is as wide as the sheet? Or more accurately, multiple heads placed in a row to take up the width of the sheet. Like those are the kinds of solutions to these problems. And so when the paper goes through the press, it's literally shooting ink the entire width of the paper. And it can print a whole sheet of paper full color with a coating. And like, I mean, I think we were doing like several thousand per hour. Like I think the... Before, I, uh, you, you could get a J-Press that would do like 3,600 pay, uh, sheets per hour. And this is for something where you put it next to an offset. You're like, well, I can, I'm seeing double. I, can, I mean, I can tell the difference because I can. That's the kind of technology that people are going to these days because it's faster, it's cheaper, and the quality can actually be really good. Just to put that into context, when you talk about, you know, most inkjets these days, what, a couple of pages a minute, if that. Yeah, we're just talking like color lasers will do stuff like, you know, oh, they'll do 10, 15 pages a minute or whatever on color lasers. Or you have your high quality inkjet printer. If you're doing a photo printer, like you, that takes like a minute per page. Mm. Or if you're just talking like A4 size sheets or eight and a half by 11 sheets on the J press, we're talking something that is 20, uh, like 36 inches wide by 24 inches tall. You know, that is a, it's a really large sheet. You know, it's like a four up, you know, do four, eight, uh, you know, four, eight up type things. So all of this, I, we've gotten very far afield from, you know, vintage Macs and DTP, but all that stuff came from that place, like without the Mac and without the postscript, you know, because that's, it's still at the end of the day, it's still, you can think of that J press as like a giant Mac even though it's running on a PC, a giant laser writer, even though it's an inkjet, and PDF behind the screens, which is really PostScript. It's just on a completely wildly different scale. You know, it's like, I, I don't really see how anything else could have could have gone that way. Now, I, w- I will, I will uh, put myself aside from talking about all this, you know, print industry, who's you, what's it's and doodads, and just say, you know, I remember, I think before the show, you were talking about a Power Mac 8600, I think. Were you not? Uh, I, the iMac G4 is the one I talk, mentioned, but I, I'm, Power Mac, no, my friend had a, my friend had a performer. Oh, the performer. The performer so right. he had a performer. Now, it was a, it wasn't one of the all-in-ones. It was a... A tower? It, no, it was a pizza box like. Oh, a desk. Okay, I know exactly desktop. the one you're talking about. It's probably like what we would call a Performa. Like it would before it be the 600 series, and then it became if it was if it was a power PC, it was a 6000. It was it was a 68k machine. Okay, so it would have been a 600 series. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. And he had the TV tuner slash AV card in it. I have one of those in the box right here. And I remember we were doing some stuff for our youth group and he brought it all around, brought everything around and we captured like maybe like two or three, I think maybe 10 seconds of the <laughs> clip from the Matrix to use for something and it took us all day to render the thing out. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I, that's, but that's what we love about this stuff. Like that's sort of like how 
we're doing on our like my first Photoshop projects that I when I was cutting my teeth on Photoshop on these beige Macs. Like we're talking Power Mac, 200 megahertz Power Max, and then eventually this is like 96, 97. So we're talking about 200 megahertz Power Max here, like Photoshop 3.0 with only one level of undo. One level of undo. Wow. Yeah. And I, I was learning how to like digitally color comics because that, that's something I, I still do to this day is digitally coloring and, and lettering comics. Like that's, I mean, that's something that in the bad old days was really hard. You had to like cut out these color separation bits and do all the, like, you know, this really tedious and awful work. Now it's just the computer. It's much easier, much faster, much more powerful. It's like good rinse to bad garbage as far as the old stuff goes. But you know, that was how I learned Photoshop was, was all that. And I think there's, that's a common story for a lot of people out there. That's like, that's how they learned Photoshop is they had like some kind of project that gave them some kind of passion. And in a lot of cases it could have been on like these, you know, these old Macs as it were, you know, that, that kind of brought them to it as creaky as they were. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, we, I think a lot of people discount, you know, those Macs is all that's before Jobs came back. They aren't cool. When we started to get, you know, the the, the G3 iMac, because mm-hmm. I might be wrong on this, and if I am, I'm, but the blue and white G3 was not the first G3 Mac. Correct. There was a, be- there was a beige, ver- actually, there was even an all-in-one mm-hmm. G3. It's what I like to call the tooth. Uh, other people call it the molar, but I, I just say, well, it's a, I think it might be more, really more of a bicuspid shape. I don't know. I'm yeah. not a dentist. Um, <laughs> Thank but, goodness for <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But, uh, uh, anyway. but yeah, there were beige G3s, and that's why, I mean, I used a beige G3 for quite a bit during my high school uh, career as a, you know, learning Photoshop and page maker and illustrator, you know, and those machines, I mean, I can say a lot about those machines that I don't like very much. And as the age has gone by and you, it's funny how I think that's true with all these retro things. We've had some years beyond them where, you know, remember back then that was before Mac OS 10, you know, that was Mac, that was system seven Mac OS eight, where you're sitting there constantly mashing command S because God knows, you know, you could have some crash and it would take the whole thing down because there was no preemptive multitasking, no protected memory, none of that. You know, when did that, was that Mac OS ten? It was Mac preemptive. It was yeah. Mac OS and like they kind of hacked in a couple things to to do certain things in Mac OS eight and Mac OS nine, but it was not true. It's like it was really took Mac OS ten which was next based to just say we're a clean break. We've got all these actual modern computing features now which is you know it's a, it's amazing when you think about it you know mac os 10 outli- outliving the classic mac os you know it's, it's been that way for longer that's one way to make it feel old <laughs> in my first experience with mac os like actually daily driving mac os was tiger 10.4 tiger that's a good time to get into it too because by then most of the most of the tough points had been kind of smoothed out like i mean the first mac that i actually owned was a titanium power book and uh, it was for a good for i mean all the other macs in my life were st- i either used them at work or i used them at school you know i i we had a pcs at home so but i said well if i'm going to buy a laptop i'm going to buy a mac and i 
667 megahertz with the DVI port that I think cost $2,800 at that time. Uh, that, that was a lot of, that was a lot of, uh, working, uh, a lot of working hours. <laughs> Did it, is, so the tie book, isn't that the one that had like the problem with the coating coming off and. Yep. I've got one in the, on the other room over there. I mean, hinges breaking. I mean, yeah. the thing is like, it's a very beautiful machine, but it's also a very fragile machine. And there, there were a lot of machines back then that were very much like that. Uh, the tie book, you know, it's like, I remember on mine, the hinge, I remember one day I opened it up, snap, busted the hinge. I, I remember mailing it away to some place to put a new hinge. This is before Apple care would even touch it. Uh, they replaced the hinge for like 150 bucks, which isn't terrible, but it's like, it's, you're without your, you're without your computer for a week. I mean, I still had my windows machine. So, I mean, I wasn't completely computerless, but still, and we yeah, that just seemed like a common thing for us because especially back then, like those beige Macs, especially if we're thinking in the early power PC era, I mean, the hardware was just, that's why people were buying clones because the hardware was really expensive. It wasn't, I mean, it was reliable enough, but you know, Apple's engineering was kind of overwrought and you know, what's what's the way i mean i i don't know the right phrase for it but it's a case where you you make something that's too complicated for its own good you know what i would say like a german car (laughs) over over engineered maybe kind of kind of over engineered in in some places and yet under engineered in other places you know and that performa that your friends has was of that you know of that sort of era I mean, I have a soft spot for those machines now, and I think the only reason I have a soft spot, and I think you would probably say the same thing for your other vintage and retro machines as well, is that we're not living with them every day anymore. With a Mac, we're not dealing with those extension conflicts. We're not dealing with memory fragmentation anymore. We're not trying to free up as much RAM as we can for Quark to manually assign it so we can open up a certain document. We're not constantly command Sing. We're not sitting there... So oh, I'm running this Photoshop filter. I'm going to go up and get something to drink because it's a modal and it's taken over my entire system. I can't do anything else. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Now we can, you know, it's kind of like, I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with like horse racing or, or anything else like that. But the analogy I like to think of is, you know, before we had cars, even with all the societal ills and everything we have with cars, you know, we were running horses into the ground. And now that we have cars, horses aren't so much beasts of burden anymore. Horses are great at a lot of things, but now we can have cars that do the things that we used to do with horses a lot better. And now we say, okay, well, if I want to enjoy horse, I can just go to, you know, the pony rides or go, I can go to Saratoga and watch the horses run around the track. You know, I've, I, I think that's the best way. I mean, I like thinking of them that way. It's like, we can use them for nicer things. We can enjoy them more for what they are instead of what we were trying to force them to be back in the day. We can have fun with them, like, you know, uh, Sean from Action Retro mm. creating a raid array out of 30 floppy disks <laughs> on, on, on a vintage <laughs> bag. Like, oh, come on. Really? I, I mean, that- Sean, he's a, wild, he's a wild and crazy guy. And some of the stuff that he pulls is is simply amazing. And so I remember earlier in the episode that I own a, a Macintosh TV. Now, uh, a Macintosh TV, uh, for those that are not familiar, is one of those perf- all-in-one Performa LC hook 
style chassis, except it's all Darth Vader black. Yes. And the idea behind the Macintosh TV was that they're saying, oh, well, you know, we could sell these to like college students who say, well, we could have a computer and a TV. That'll get them to buy Macs this time. I mean, this is the kind of harebrained stuff that you're dealing with with Apple of the 90s. They only made like 10,000 of them or whatever. And so one day I was just sit- sitting around the house and I got a thing from Craigslist. I have notifications for local stuff that comes up and says, hey, somebody's selling something. And it came up with this guy who's selling a Macintosh TV for $80. Now he says, now it doesn't boot. I'm like, that's fine. Uh, but I happened to see it. It's like I got the email. It's like, I'm going to. I immediately just, I didn't care if it didn't boot. It's like, that can be fixed. It's about $80. I'm like, okay, we can talk. So I sent the guy an email and said, hey, can I come? He's like, sure. He lived a couple towns over. So it was a 20 minute drive down to his place. And this, uh, this guy, he had it right there with the keyboard and the mouse and the remote control. So it's like the whole kit. And it's true. It would not start. I'm like, that's okay. I can deal with that. He had other interesting, like he had a couple 128Ks that have in various states of disrepair. He had a Macintosh portable that didn't boot, that didn't start. Uh, I know somebody else had p- uh, picked that up. He had in his back room, he had just a series of like Macintosh 2 cases and 2CX cases that were gutted. They were empty. He used them as storage boxes. I mean, this guy was, he was a really interesting character. And I told him, I was like, you should go on a podcast and tell your story sometime. The very short version of his story is that for a long time, he worked with, uh, uh, underprivileged children and another stuff to bring old, the older, the refurbished, like the old all in one Macs and brought them to foreign countries, uh, for computer literacy. And so he did this stuff in like, he did it in Africa. He did in all these countries where they were just taking, refurbishing these old Macs and putting, you know, kid picks and everything else on them so that these children could experience computers because this was in the nineties, like early nineties. It was extraordinarily difficult back then. It was, this was very much a sort of, I, I won't speak for the guy. He didn't, uh, he didn't give me the sort of, I don't want to say the word mission from God, but it's just one of those things where it's like it's somebody who has a deeply held belief about technology and what technology can do for somebody. I thought that was a very touching, you know, I said, I said, hey, man, you should go on a podcast or something and tell this story because that was a it was a really interesting story. So I got the Mac TV from him and. Of course, didn't I brought it home? Didn't boot. I knew it got power, but it it needed caps and other stuff. So, but because there's only so many of these boards, and my restoration skills are mediocre at best, I actually I packaged it up, and uh, it's current. The logic board and stuff are currently in the hands of uh, Steve uh, Mac eighty four. Oh um, yes, yeah. Yeah, so he will be doing a restoration on that. I'm paying him to do a restoration on that board sometime in the future. So hopefully I can get that machine uh, back up and running. I know it gets power. I know the analog board stuff is still good. It's It was the logic board, but it's like – and with the way that machine is – you know, there's so few of them. It's like, I don't want to screw this up. I'm like, oh, luckily I have a good relationship with an expert. So I, I called the expert. He said, sure, send it on over. So hopefully that Macintosh TV will uh, will come back to life someday. I mean, so it's, it's interesting you mention, you know, Steve from Mac 84, you know, and I talked obviously about Sean from Action Retro. And of course, mm-hmm. we've had Ken. Yep, from Crazy Ken. Clan. Great guy, and he's just, as I speak, just released a, a video on a prototype, 
I think it's one of the. It was a quadra. I want to say it was probably. Uh, he's actually. Um, I've been busy the past. My my YouTube has been piling up on me because I've been busy with work and some other things over the past couple of days. And usually Saturday is my okay. I'm going to sit down and watch YouTube day. But it's more important that I you know guest on your show and you YouTube will be there when I'm done. So that's it's on my list. But I think it was probably like a quadra seven hundred or something something of that vein. You know, I think he cut his Jurassic Park max of what, yes. what would have been featured. I, I just loved anyway. But that mm. brings me on to something. There are so many of these classic max. These, and I don't mean Mac classic necessarily, but mm. I'm you know vintage max. So for me, I think we said this earlier. This is anything pre Intel for me. Sure, is what I would, would. Then again, even some of the early Intel machines are pieces in their own right. Yes, like those white polycarbonate macbooks yes those machines i mean you know i had i owned one of those and because that is what replaced my titanium power book and i mean for in terms of the performance and the specs in that package it was a really good package but man i can understand why they went away from those polycarbonate casings because that was the so only machine that not just easy to damage but like they just came apart they like they crumbled and so like they i had a top case repair you know i've had that that machine had a lot of things that uh it it was not savable unfortunately so it wound up going to the great uh you know i had somebody i gave it to that they could rip parts and stuff out of it but i mean there's there's definitely collectible stuff with that but i i'm also with you that to me anything that is you know, pre-Intel is definitely more collect collectible in a sense. And and that brings it so somewhat so obviously we we've talked about the legacy of a Mac in terms of its desktop pub- publishing pedigree, but if someone's wanting to collect vintage Macs, mm. what and what are things that they should be looking out for? Where can we get started and maybe things to avoid? I mean, you talked mm. about Macintosh Portable. That thing does not get en- enough of a look in at times because it's a complicated it machine. A complicated machine. This is before those, you know, for one thing we'll say, I'll say for Apple, if I ever had the opportunity to own an original PowerBook. I I mean, dude, I've got three of I've got three of them here in the house. I'd be happy to give you one. Uh unfortunately, you know, Should you're be. if you I mean, um, you ever come to, if you ever make your way uh, to the states or if I ever I keep saying that, you know, I'm going to go to the the UK. I mean, I've been to Ireland. You know, because okay. I have I have a family connection in Ireland, but I've not yet been to anywhere in the actual you know United Kingdom, whether it's Scotland or England. Or, but I'd, I'd like to go to London. I'd like to go and explore the the grand British countryside, as so and many of course people you've got to go to the cave. I've got to go. To, yeah. Uh, well, I also would want to go to that. Uh, I believe because you've got the Center for Computing History. Yes, yes. Uh, Bletchley Park, yes. Yeah. Yep, I, I would love to see that because that would have so much stuff there that, like, for here would be impossible for me to see. You know, it's just, it's like, it's like I could two weeks of, I could spend two weeks in England just doing so, okay, what's all my retro and vintage stuff I can do when I'm out there? But see, uh, Neil's, missing, Neil's missing the trick here. He could do package holidays for retro <laughs> nerds. <laughs> Well, have a have a Christmas time. Have a Christmas time celebration. Christmas at the cave with you know people donate uh, vintage stuff, and you do. A, I get in the states we would call it a Yankee swap. I don't know what they would call it. In, yeah, no, we, in we, the we, UK. we have that. Yeah, like, but, well, uh, I guess we call it like. See, is it, 
We, I mean, we have Secret Santa, but Yankee Swap is kind of a different thing. But yeah, sort of like you know, pass, you know, share the share the wealth sort of thing. Because yeah. I mean, I've got these power books now. I got three of them. One of them, of the three of them, one of them actually works pretty well. One of them, I think, needs kind of some screen work done on it, but boots otherwise. But yeah, so if you're look, uh, Macintosh Portable is not where I would recommend somebody getting into vintage Mac collecting because the Macintosh Portable. That machine is slap. I don't want to say slapped together, but it is definitely a machine that was engineered in a very difficult way. And it's like if you don't know the gotchas going into it, you're either going to destroy the machine or you're going to be very unhappy. There's easier ways to get into it. Like there's so uh, the easiest way I think right now is honestly to get into that sort of late '90s power PC era. They're not that hard to get into because they made a bajillion of them. You know, you can. I mean. People are, I'm sure you can look up on Craigslist or Gumtree or Facebook Marketplace or any sorts of things you can find. Say, oh, I've got an old iMac that I want to get rid of. That's not a bad jumping in point because iMacs have networking. They have USB. You know, they're very easy to hook peripherals and things up to. You know, if you and they will run, you know, classic games because what a lot of people do is they want to run you know, classic games or whatever, you can run a vast majority of really good stuff on that vintage of machine where if you say, okay, well, I want something more of the ADB era. You have to think, well, do I want something that's 68 K or do I want something that's power PC? And in my mind, it's worthwhile to have an actual 68 K machine and an actual power PC machine, whether it's a newer vintage power PC machine um, or something more of the of the earlier thing. The nicer thing about uh, the mid-range power PCs is that they have PCI cards, you know. So th- there's a lot more card and add-in availability. What you run into is SCSI hard drives because they're all dying. And luckily today, it's actually a lot nicer now than it was a few years ago if you were involved in this because it used to be it was SCSI 2SD or you know that's all you had. Nowadays, we have blue SCSI. There's raw SCSI. That's something you're really going to have to think about when you get into this because with the modern ones, they have USB, they have optical media. It's not that hard to, even with Ethernet, it's not that hard to get stuff onto them, relatively speaking. With the the older machines, you have to think about a little more. You say, okay, a lot of them have CD-ROM drives. That's not too bad. Floppies, you have to think about, okay, is it a super drive or is it 800K? 800K gets a lot more, gets even more complicated. SCSI hard drives, you know, you have to deal with that. If you want a good entry point, like something that's not too expensive on the 68K side, is you need to look at something that's undervalued. So like uh, people say, oh, a 2FX is great. Yeah, 2FX is great if you can find one that isn't destroyed in some way or that you know, somebody's willing to part with for a reasonable price. The little black and white all-in-one Macs, they're actually fairly affordable. You can pick them up. You know, they're not too bad to pick up. They're not that hard to fix, you know, relatively speaking. The downside is that you say, okay, well, I want to think about a Mac Plus or an SE or a Classic. You look at those and say, well, you're dealing with 800K floppies. Unless you're lucky enough to have an SE that has an upgraded ROM with a super drive in it. You know, th- those are the things that you start thinking about. But really, they all have SCSI ports. 
you can blue scuzzy, raw scuzzy, you know, all that stuff. That's what you really have to think about. And that's actually what makes those black and white Macs easy to do. Because if you have basic restoration skills and assuming that the tube is good and stuff, all it takes is just a blue scuzzy, raw scuzzy with an image. And those machines are pretty much up and going. There's not, there's not that much to them. Now, they're not color. You know, they're maybe limited on what they have for RAM, but I think they're, they're neat. You know, they're, they're nice conversation pieces that are nice to have in the house. They look good. They look good. Yeah. But you start looking at color stuff and that's where your performa starts, you know, being something that's interesting. You, the color stuff you run and say, okay, Apple used a proprietary monitor connectors. So you got to think, okay, can I use it with a VGA monitor? The answer is usually yes. You can get adapters to use VGA monitors. For the most part, it's it's not that hard. You know, you, you set the dip switches, you plug it in, and for the most part, it does the job. Or you can, if you find one, you can get a clone that actually has a VGA port and PS2 ports and other stuff. You know, there's tons of ADB stuff out there still. And most of the time, people who are unloading these things, they usually have some form of peripherals. You know, I think you just need to think about, you know, usually if you're getting into those classic Macs, it's probably because you used to use one in the past. If you haven't used one of those Macs in the past, I would really do some homework first. You know, actually, you're going to... The nice thing is there's lots of contemporary books out there. There's a website, uh, Vintage Apple. And if you go to Vintage Apple, they have scans not only of manuals, but of like contemporary help books, like the Macintosh Bible. Like you had these classic Macworld guys who wrote, you know, these books that were this thick. You say, oh, I'm looking at a System 7 era. How do I even use System 7? What are the, what's an extension? What's control panel? Like what's the basic stuff on how to use the OS? And if you get, just do a, because that's what I did as a kid, you know, you go to the library I'm not sure if you did this. We go to the library. They have a computer section with all these books. I'm like, I'm going to go and get these computer books. And I'm just going to read these help books about operating systems because I'm that much of a freaking nerd. But, you know, in other cases, it's just, hey, you find somebody unloading a machine, you get the machine, and if it boots, hey, at least that's something. And if you know somebody who can help you restore it or even learn how to restore it yourself – it's not that hard to get into, but my recommended entry point for most people is that early jobs era, that late 90s, early aughts. Uh, you know, a blue and white G3 tower is like a perfect, perfect machine. It'll play lots of classic games, has VGA ports, has USB, has an ADB port, so you can still use ADB peripherals, has PCI cards, has, you know, IDE hard drives and optical drives. You can put an internal zip drive in it. You can put a SCSI card into it. They're very easy machines to modify and have. And, you know, the batteries, too, they're just those little half AA batteries that you can buy on Amazon for, get a three-pack for 10 bucks or whatever. And, of I, course, with ID hard drives comes the ability to mm -hmm. um, get adapters to run modern. You can do modern, uh, I think you can do SATA to IDE adapters, but will then take a, a you know, a modern SSD. Now, you ha I think you have to be very careful with those because not yes. all of them work. But at the same time, you know, you step up into, you know, if you can, if you find someone throwing out, now here's a question, of course, because mm -hmm. I was about to say G5. If you can find a mm. G5 going, great machine, beautiful machines, and they had SATA, but... There is a point, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know exactly where this is, but there's a point at which higher level 
PowerPC machine stopped being able to run macOS Classic. That is correct. No, Well, no G5 will natively boot into OS 9. Okay. The last machine that would boot OS 9 was a 1.25 gigahertz dual, uh, we call it the press room special because this was Apple kept this machine around for the pre-press people who needed OS 9. And OS 9 hung on for a long time because of Mac OS 10 adoption took a long time because of utilities, all the stuff that, you know, to drag people kicking and screaming into a modern computer. Didn't so, you mention earlier there was a whole thing with Quark not running for a long mm, time, not running on uh, OS 10. Yeah, it w- that was the case because Quark 5.0 came out right when 10.1 was coming out. And InDesign 2.0 had come out, which was carbon native, came out in a very similar, very similar time frame. And right. Quark, the Quark 5.0 came out and people were sort of promised, oh, yes, we'll release a carbon update for 5.0. That never happened. You had to buy Quark 6. And that was another $800. And people were... People were very unhappy about that. That, yeah. So if you want to still boot an OS 9, you want one of the the mirrored drive doors G4s. Now, there is one mirrored drive door G4 that will not boot into OS 9. It is the one that has uh, FireWire 800 ports. Yes. Now, it can be hacked. And you can, in fact, hack newer G4s to run OS 9. Like, there's Mac Minis that are G4s that you can hack to run OS 9. But if you want officially Apple supported, it's the dual 1.25 gigahertz with uh, FireWire uh, 400 because that one was actually a holdover. The The FireWire 800 one replaced it. The FireWire 800 one was replaced by the G5. The old one hung around as that special for another year. I mean, I like G5s. I mean, I think they look neat, but the reality is, is that to run a G5, you're running PowerPC Mac OS 10 up to 10.5. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're, they're neat machines, but, you know, it's one of those things like, okay, well, what are you planning on doing with it exactly? Because you can run those games of that era either most of the time, either on PCs or you can run them in Rosetta on an Intel Mac and, a, and a, say an Intel Mac Pro. And odds are they'll usually run better than they do yeah. on, on a G5. You know, it's, uh, but like I said, and then there's the liquid cooled G5s, which are a whole other kettle of fish. Oh, gosh, yeah. Be, you don't be, want to be messing. I mean, I see people do restorations of those, but you have to buy that committing to that restoration. <laughs> if you don't, you're just throwing your money, might as well light the money on fire. But as you said, you know, a G a, a, a G3 Blue and white G3 tower is a great machine. Or if you can get an uh, an iMac, could the um, lamp stand iMacs run OS nine? I think they could. I think the very be. first generation of them, the fifteen inch ones, could still boot into OS nine. There, there was there was another another point where those uh, where those stopped. I th- it was the Rev A ones would, but I, I still think that that machine is not an OS nine machine. Like that machine no. belongs with OS. It's 10. the OS ten either. Yeah, yeah, it's the OS ten. Whereas the so, Gumdrop G threes, uh, those you really should stick to OS nine or OS eight on them, depending on what you want to run and whatever. But those, I mean, those are still nice machines because again, they take USB peripherals. You can plug a modern keyboard and mouse into it. You just go and they've got yeah exactly they've got Ethernet 
you know, they're very easy to, you know, I mean, yes, they don't have floppy drives. Using thumb drives on them is a little tough because they don't have USB 2.0, but that's when you start to become uh, fond of the Mac user's best friend, then and now, the zip drive. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Good old zip drive. I mean, that's I, I one thing. Uh, sorry, tell, tell me about your zip drives. Oh, so I don't, I mean, I have fond memories. Of it. I had two. Oh, really? I had, a pa- I had a parallel port one when I was still on PC. Mm-hmm. And then I got a USB one when I moved to the Mac. And it's amazing, you know, people think, oh, Apple removed the floppy drive. Yeah, but Apple also made USB mainstream. They did. And to be fair, in the towers, they included zip drives. In the towers, because I mean that market again. Zip drives were all the rage amongst the DTP market, just like jazz drives were. I mean, I, on the other side of the room, I have uh, actually I bought a zip drive today. As a matter of fact, it was a two dollar special. It, it didn't have a power supply, but it's like I have power supplies for those. It's actually a combo USB parallel two hundred and fifty meg zip drive, <laughs> and it's using one of those funky tiny parallel current connectors, not one of the big. Centronics ones. I remember. Yes, yes, I remember those. Yeah, I've got multiple flavors. I've got a USB Zip 100. I've got SCSI Zip 100s. Again, SCSI Zip drives, great for old Macs. You know, yeah. they're great. It's amazing how well of a portal those things are. I mean, you can still buy new old stock media that works perfectly fine. I mean, I've gotten... Uh, that's one thing about DTP and Macs is that they were real... Like for storage media, if you wanted to launch new storage media, that kind of was the place to go. Like SciQuest drives. I mean, that's that was the big deal for us back in the day. SciQuest drives. The and then, and then uh, the Bernoulli was interesting. I have a Bernoulli drive over there. And then the Zip kind of took over. Like the Zip kind of put SciQuest out of it. And then the Jazz came in. And then the Jazz is, you know, that everybody was a thought. Huge, huge. Fl- well, it had so many issues, didn't it? I know. Jazz. People, it's like, we love the jazz drive, but it's one of those things where, again, like a German car, it's doing more than it was probably engineered to do. So we, you know, I have I have a jazz drive over there that I took out from somebody's 8100 that I, you know, picked apart for parts. And uh, the jazz drives, they were just not reliable enough. It's like you had to make sure you kept multiple th- copies of things. But the thing was, is that there was no better alternatives. You know, CDRs were, were still expensive. were expensive. Yeah. They were still kind of a ways away and you could only write to them once. You and know? they were slow. And they were slow. Like a jazz drive. I mean, we were still using jazz discs uh, till like 2006. Like when I was working at a, at a shop, it's like, okay, yep. We still used jazz drives for certain things, but they were kind of on their way out at the time because, you know, as it was, but like if you needed a removable media, it's like two gigs of rewritable removable media. You know what? Thumb drives were just not to the point yet. You know, it it's amazing as well. And of course, you know the Mac. But there's so many things we could talk about, and I'm definitely going to be reaching out to more of a vintage Mac community. I mean, I might have to talk to you after a show about. But we should do like a roundtable. You know, it would. Let, no. let me talk to you about about that after we finish recording, because mm. that's absolutely on the agenda. <laughs> it's great to see, you know, great to get some advice. And one thing I want to say is, there's so many wonderful YouTubers out there. Yes, and so obviously we think of Steve from Mac eighty four, Crazy Ken, uh, Sean from Action Retro. But yeah, you know, some of the videos I've really enjoyed have been with sort of the deep dives into the history 
of things like, and I'll come back to this in a second, but things like those old Power Macs, mm. but also the um, PowerBook Duo. Um, yes. So um, Colin from This Does Not Compute did yes. a wonderful video. Now, fun story. The same school, my high school, our uh, art teacher ha- somehow got hold of a power book duo with a docking station. Oh, wow. And he actually let me, he said, look, I want you, I don't know how to use this. Can you help me? I'm like, well, I'm not really a Mac guy. But he said, look, take the, the laptop home with you and play with it. You and I so have a I, similar story on this front because I, when I was in eighth grade, I was lent one of these old, just like I have up here, 100 era power books. They're like, I, I have no idea how I managed to do this. I think my, I think teachers or whatever just recognize it. Like, you know, this kid's, this kid's good. You know, so uh, for some reason, I had it for a, a week or two for wow. reasons that are not explained to me. Uh, but, you know, what I think maybe they felt it kept me out of greater trouble. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, a duo with a duo dock. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And it was the proper duo dock, not the mini one. It was the proper, like... With the new bus slots? Mm-hmm. Oh, Wow. Yeah, it was it was on his desk. Obviously, he couldn't take that home, but yeah. we tried to get it, you know, working for stuff. I also, for a short period, uh, not a Mac technically, but did get to borrow an E-Mate. Um, I own an E-Mate. There we go. Um, and I think I think I missed my opportunity because I think we were actually trying to see whether or not I'd get one through like special because edu- of my eyesight, special educational need funding. I think I didn't like it enough to get to keep it. Like. Uh, you know what? The, I mean, the e-mate's an interesting thing. It's like, for me, the e-mate is more of an object to collect yes. than something to actually use. I mean, if I need something to run Newton stuff, uh, you know, it's there. But it's like, for me, I, I just think it's cool. You know, it's just one of those things where sometimes I, I collect things because they're cool. You know, sometimes Absolutely. I get lucky. Like, that's why, I, I, admittedly, that's why I got the Mac TV, because it's not a great Mac and it's a lousy TV. But it's cool it, it is so cool. Like as opposed to my two GS, which I mean, I love that machine. I bought that off of uh, this nice, uh, this nice uh, older couple who lived down on the South Shore here in Massachusetts, and they mu- they were turbo Apple II people. I mean, this thing. It's funny. I'm not sure your experience with going out and collecting stuff sometimes, but you know, you watch the Facebook marketplaces, you watch the Craigslist, you watch all this stuff to see who's selling what and what's going. I see this listing pop up for a 2GS. There's a two uh, picture, 2GS monitors, some floppy drives, and it booted, you know, showed boot screen. And she said and it said, you know, two, $250 for this 2GS with monitor drives. There is a hard drive and blah blah blah. I'm like, "Okay, yeah. I I happened to see it. I sent an email and said, "Hey, I'll I'll come pick it up." And she's like, "Sure." So I come down and they're like, "Now you're going to have to take this whole collection." And it turned out that it was the 2GS, three floppy drives, two hard disks, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of old style old Apple II five and a quarter inch floppy disks, hundreds of three and a half inch disks of 2GS stuff, boxes and boxes of parts, uh, software, uh, software boxes, just like I'll, I'll send you offline. I'll, I'll DM you some of the stuff. But the, most of that was, I, I had to sort through all, there was an image writer and a bunch of other stuff I had to sort through too. Just my car, my hatchback was just full of stuff, but <laughs> I got it home and I opened it. I like, okay, the two GS is what we care about. So I go and I clean everything up, you know, do your whole, you know, clean up with everything. And I pop open the two GS and it's like, 
This thing has it has four megs of memory, and it has a uh, not not the uh, not the trans warp, but it had a zip chip. So it had like a twelve megahertz uh, zip chip accelerator in it. So I mean that accelerator by itself is probably worth two hundred and fifty dollars. So like just the the amount of stuff that I got out of I mean was was crazy. But like for me, it's like that two GS. Uh, it was, I never had one. There was one in the, in our public library in town that's, I used it once and I'm like, I really like that machine. And I read the book. They had the, there's an Apple two GS book that you can get. That was a really nice read. It's like, I always wanted one of those and now I got it. And I've proceeded to do absolutely nothing with it except try the sequencer. saw. So- I mean, I've played some games, but the real thing I've tried with this is, is the sequencer software. And you know, I hope that maybe when people collect their vintage Macs sometimes that they open up like old Photoshop or old Illustrator or old page. I I know the Amiga addicts guys tried doing stuff on proper Amiga things, and I think they have since given that up. But I think it was worth the – it was nice that they tried. <laughs> yes, yes. I, You know what? I would love to go back. There are things on, that I did on the Amiga – like I remember doing a bit of homework about trains mm. and in D paint drawing at, at like a high speed <laughs> yeah. into City One T Five. It was not a great image for anyone wondering. I do not have it anymore. But it is, you know, it is fascinating. And thank you so much, Dan. Oh, and, you know, we we are coming up You're on welcome. two hours of raw record time. And you know what? It's been such a blast to to it go into been. that history. Yeah, it's been great and. It just brings back so many memories for me of seeing those Macs in those pre-press offices. And also, you know, one of the reasons I switched to Mac is, was, I mean, I'll very quickly tell the story. So the reason I switched to Mac is I was trying to edit a wedding video mm-hmm. and my PC just kept dying, it literally died. It was a horrible machine bought from a horrible store. So I borrowed off a friend his G4 PowerBook. So this it, um, was an aluminium G4 yeah. PowerBook. One of the later inch. ones, yeah. Yeah, one of the later ones. And used Final Cut, and I fell in love. And that's what got me to switch. I got um, When my PC died, <laughs> it literally died, I was able to get it replaced because they recognized, yeah, it was faulty all the way through. And I, I went into the store and said, okay, I've got this voucher, you know, for credit. I want that iMac. Oh, but sir, it's a Mac. I'm like, yes, no, it's a... And it wasn't Intel Mac. It was a, as I say, it was a quarter euro. I said, yes, I know. I want... He says, ah, but you really don't. You know, you, here's this nice <laughs> that's HP. That's fighting all these years. An yeah, HP? Like, oh, it's like, oh, that's like the Christmas story. You're the kid, you know, you're asking for your Red Ryder carbine rifle, and they're like, you'll shoot your eye out, kid. How about a nice football? That is literally what they were doing. Yeah. To. It's like, no, you're the customer. You have the money. You yeah. say, give me my Mac. Shut up and take my money. <laughs> and I remember... Coming home with it, my you know, coming back in my car with, with my dad, because you know, I still live with my mum and dad at this point, mm-hmm. and sitting up on my desk, and my mum says, oh, that's a nice one. She said, no, oh, well, that's the entire computer. She's like, oh, why can't Microsoft <laughs> do that? <laughs> like, I mean, well, not for lack of trying. No, that is true. Anyway, uh, before we wrap up, yep. do you want to make, where can people find you? Obviously, we know about the yep. podcast, but where can people find you on social media and sure. all that lovely stuff? Yeah, so um, like I said, if you want to listen to my uh, the stuff that I 
right or whatever, you can go to userlandia.com. If you don't want to listen, you know, all the stuff is written out in nice transcript blog posts, or you can subscribe and listen to my dulcet tones, bring them to your ear holes. Otherwise, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Kefka Floyd. Um, I don't really use Facebook for anything because they are the devil. Yep. Yeah, Twitter is basic. I mean, I use Twitter as a public instant messenger. I mean, that's I've been Absolutely. on it for 13 years, and that's what I've used it for. And I've, you know, otherwise, I mean, I'm on, you know, we do have a Discord for Userlandia. It's pretty quiet these days because, you know, small show. But, uh, you know, I'm I'm around in other places. And, uh, you know, you'll, you'll see me pop up here and there. So, yeah, just uh, give me a follow over at uh, Kefka Floyd. And, I mean, if you want to, like, uh, even tonight, uh, I realize it'll be too late for you. You'll be off in dreamland. But uh, one thing I do usually on Wednesday, Thursday, and sometimes Saturday nights is uh, we do streaming uh, with a group of friends of mine. Um, our channel is called Let's Racing Time. And what we do is um, it's basically just a bunch of guys who get together. We're not really speedrunners. We get together and play games together to race each other and see, you know, like, uh, you know, we do randomizers. We just wrapped up a Super Mario Brothers 3, a league where uh, we we did that. Um, we, we do randomize. We just we play random games where we say, hey, I want to see who's the fastest at Mega Man X. Um, and we decide to do that. Or we could just say, like we did on Thursday, we just had a night where you just played City Skylines. And we're just saying, I mean, we get a little competitive. Say, oh, whose city has the most population right now, or who's got the this or that? But you know, it's an it's an excuse for us to sit around for an hour and a half and uh, play games together and hang out and have a good time. So yeah, that uh, I would say that's uh, where people can find me. And you know, James, uh, you know what you're doing with your show? You've got a variety of different topics. You know, it's like I tune in each week or such as it is, and. I never know what I'm going to get. It's almost always a pleasant surprise, you know? So it's like, you always kind of, you know, keep me on my toes. So, uh, you know, keep up the good work with that. Oh, thank you, Dan. And that's what we're going for. So the idea of Crosswise is that, you know, we're not a time-sensitive podcast. Mm. So uh, one thing about actually, you've made a really good point. Don't forget to go back into our back catalog. Exactly. As Dan said, you'll find something that will interest you, you know, not all our episodes are retro-based. We have, you know, m- more modern stuff. You know, we taught, yeah, last week. No, hang on. I think um, it was the time, other week you did a home kit uh, episode. Did home kit, because um, we were talking about that in um, in Neil's uh, Discord earlier, mm. um, about home kit. But we've done stuff about audio interfaces. I've interviewed the Squadcast CEO. Well, I had a chat with, with Zach, Zach, really, to uh, to talk about this stuff. But my goal with Crosswire is very simple. For those who haven't quite figured this out yet, we want to look at cool and exciting tech, no matter what its age. Mm. But as l- basically, we want to get people doing cool things. So that's what we're doing. Now, some housekeeping. For us, we're on social media, again, just on Twitter, CrosswiresMG. If you, for some reason, want to follow me on Twitter, I'm J.S. Billsborough, and I will spell that, at J, hang on, at J-S-B-I-L-S-B-R-O-U-G-H. We've got to get you an easier handle, man. Oh, do you know, I, maybe one day, maybe one day. It's 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 kind of where, you know, the, the name I use everywhere. Anyway, Hi. email us, podcast at crosswires.net. We are in the process of working, and we're working on Discord. That's going to be just, uh, we're going to have a really cool, hopefully, hangout space, a nice, you know, sort of um, community around that, because Discord's wonderful for stuff like that. We're mm. just working on a few little bits there. We are also working on streaming. 
so we'll make an official announcement when it's ready, but we are planning some game streaming. It won't be until after I move and everything's set up, but yeah, there's a game I've been playing, Hard, uh, Hard Space Shipbreakers. Wonderful game. We plan to stream it, and we plan to do a lot of positive games, so there will be no Fortnite streaming. There will be no Roblox <laughs> <Hey>. streaming. <laughs> Those games are out. Any, we're looking for good, genuine games. Anyway, you can find my show notes for this episode at crosswise.net, and head over to crosswise.net forward slash YouTube to see our existing YouTube content. More YouTube content will likely be coming. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Uh, please do like and subscribe. Send us in your comments. You can, of course, comment on the post itself. And if you're a good pods listener, start a discussion there, and I promise I'll reply to everyone who posts. Have a nice evening. Have a good one, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>